morning. It is a pleasure to see all of you today. It's wonderful to actually see so many people here. I wasn't expecting so many people since uh, I, I thought all the students would be out of town. But we have uh, a pretty full house for, for the summer here. So thank you for coming and worshiping with us. It's, it's a great honor that you do that. Now, we have started in on a sermon series uh, on the attributes of God. This is theology proper. We're, we're talking about who God is and what he is like. So we've been over kind of the grand scheme uh, of why we study theology, why it's important, and then we followed that up with looking at God as the infinite one, and then last week we looked at God as the person who is being, who is the source of all being. This week we're going to be looking at his holiness. So let's pray, and then we can dive in. Holy Father, you are matchless in your excellencies. You are most beautiful, most wise, most glorious, most holy, most free. You are the high and exalted one. Yet, Lord, you lowered yourself for us. You lowered yourself, sending your son to us to teach us who you are, to show us who you are. Lord, thank you so much for that. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Lord Jesus, we thank you that no distance was too great, not even coming from all eternity into the body of, of a small human taking the form of a servant. Even that wasn't too far for you. Thank you that... You are peerless in your love for us. Holy Spirit, you are our wonderful counselor and our comforter. You are the one who guides our thoughts, who points our hearts toward Jesus. We ask, Lord, this morning that you do that. Make Jesus big in our eyes. Let us see him truly. Amen. So as I said, today we're going to be talking about the holiness of God. Now, holiness as a concept, it's kind of uh, fallen on hard times here in the church. We don't talk very much about it um, as something to strive for. You know, that's kind of a little bit, almost, a, a bit of a dirty word. You know, we, holiness, who wants that? Of course, we should all want it, but it's not very emphasized nowadays in church and I think the reason for that is that there's kind of a misapprehension of what it is and there's also just the very nature of holiness itself holiness is a purity and it's a moral purity and whenever we see people who are morally pure we have kind of two reactions either we revere them you know that's that's a holy man or she's a holy woman she's amazing or with scoffing 
you know, outside the church we hear scoffing uh, whenever holiness is brought up. And it's kind of like, well, you're a hypocrite. Of course, you're not holy. I know that. But even inside the church, too, we have kind of that scoffing mentality when it comes to holiness. And we hear someone is striving for holiness and we start thinking, well, they must be legalistic. They must be really diving deep into the law and trying to keep it. Doesn't that make them legalistic? We even have a word for that or a phrase, actually. It's holier than thou. It's it's a way to make fun of somebody. And sometimes it sometimes it's actually appropriate. But the simple fact that we have that phrase that we use of people kind of casts for you what we think about holiness itself. Now, the thing is though, that there are some haunting things in Scripture when talking about holiness. In Leviticus, we hear God say, be holy as I am holy. Man, that's terrifying. Because I know I'm not holy like God is holy. We hear Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The end of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, our sermon passage today is from Isaiah chapter 6. And it's kind of a famous passage. This is, you know, usually thought of as his call into ministry. It's really his vision of the throne room of God. And Isaiah and his context is kind of similar um, in some ways with where we are today, okay? So, in Isaiah's time, he was ministering in Judah. And this was about 200 years before the exile. And Judah was going downhill. And it was going downhill fairly quickly. And people were not pursuing holiness, just as a general rule. And so, that's the situation that we're dealing with as we turn to the text today. So... Please stand as we read the sermon passage today. It's Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. Let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So we're going to be looking at three things from this text today. We're going to be looking at what is the holiness of God. We're going to be looking at how we react to the holiness of God. And we're going to be looking at our holiness, personal holiness. So the holiness of God, what is it? How we react to it. And our personal holiness. So what is the holiness of God? So... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of theologians that weigh in on this. And if you look at this after looking at many of the other attributes of God, you get kind of confused because every single theologian out there will define like God's aseity, that is his self-being, or God's eternity and his infinity. They'll define it in approximately the same way. Sometimes they'll even use exactly the same definition. But I looked at eight theologians for the holiness of God. And not a single one of them had the same definition. There, was, there were a lot of similarities between them. But nobody had the same definition. So there's a little bit of a confusion when we think about holiness. If you, think, if you look into what the Hebrew word actually is, it's kadosh. It means to cut or to separate, or to set apart, to sanctify. It means all of those things. And so holiness at its core has that image to it. It's separation, separation, set apart. And so when theologians talk about holiness as being the, the quality of being set apart, what do they mean? Well, they talk about it in two ways, and they do it because Scripture talks about holiness in two ways. Okay, and so in some, some verses, like uh, Exodus 15, 11, we have, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then we have Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. And this type of holiness, theologians call magisterial holiness. It's the holiness of God that is majestic in and of itself. And when they talk about magisterial holiness, they talk about it as, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. They talk about it as something that sets God apart from everybody else. This is part of his utter transcendence. So, J.I. Packer, when talking about it, he says, this covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection, and thus is an attribute of all of his attributes. 
pointing to the godness of God at every point. Every facet of God's nature and every aspect of his character may properly be spoken of as holy because it is his. James Boyce jumps on the bandwagon there and he says, It is evident, therefore, that holiness is the sum of all excellence and the combination of all the attributes which constitute perfection of character. And so magisterial holiness is that thing that sets God apart that's a combination of all of his other attributes. It's what holds all of his attributes together. It's what brings them all together in him. And how we see him as utterly distinct from all creation, utterly transcendent from everything. And so... He is infinite in being, much more than we are. He is infinite in knowledge, wisdom, power, might, truth, goodness, justice. And all of those go in to inform what it is that is his magisterial holiness. But there's another type of holiness that they talk about. And it's kind of the holiness that that you're probably more familiar with. This is the holiness that they say is ethical holiness or moral holiness. And this is being set apart completely from evil. It is a complete freedom from evil. It's a complete separation from it, a complete separation from sin. In fact, we're told in the Bible that he can have no communion with sin. If we see Job chapter 34, verse 10, he says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. He cannot do wrong. Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk is a prophet. He's come somewhat after Isaiah, and... He says this of God, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, that God cannot even look upon evil and sin in some respect. He is that set apart from it. And it's not just that he is set apart from sin. It's not just this complete freedom from evil. It's not just this complete separation from sin. It is also a sense that he demands purity from all of his moral creatures. That means from all men, from all angels. He demands their purity. Why? Well, it depends on who you ask. But many people see God's justice as flowing out of his holiness. The reason why he demands moral purity is because he cannot be with sin and he cannot approve of it. He must punish it because he is holy and his holy response to sin is justice and judgment. Sin at its core is against God. At its core it is a rebellion. If we take the law of God, that's the Ten Commandments, to be the moral, the moral law of God. That means that this is a reflection of who God is. It's a reflection of his character at every point. And whoever, whoever sins 
and breaks that law defiles himself. Defiles himself and defiles other people as they sin. And even defiles creation. So why is this important? Why is it important to understand uh, who God is as the Holy One? Why is it important to understand the holiness of God? I wasn't checking my messages. I forgot to look, put a quote down on my sheet. So I had to look it up. Well, Joel Beakey writes this. He says, The beauty of all God's attributes, that is holiness, without which his wisdom would be but subtlety, his justice would be cruelty, his sovereignty would be tyranny, and his mercy foolish pity. It's important that we know what God's holiness is because it characterizes how he actually interacts with us at every point. It holds everything together, and without his holiness, it all falls apart, just like Beaky said. Without his holiness, without his moral purity, his wisdom is just craftiness, it's just subtlety. His justice is just a cruel judgment, and that's it. He made a capricious law, and you broke it, and so he punishes you. And without his sovereign moral purity, his sovereignty would just be a tyrannical rule. And this is honestly what God is accused of in secular circles. You know, God is the moral monster they portray him as. And it's because they have no understanding of God's holiness. So, that's what God's holiness is. So how do we react to it? How do we react to seeing God as the Holy One? I'll draw attention to the text in three ways. Starting in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory and holiness were present in that vision of the throne room of God. And even though the seraphim, though they themselves were holy, though they themselves were undefiled by sin and pure and they were in the presence of God, day in, day out, so to speak, continually with him. Even they, when viewing him, shielded their faces. His holiness was too bright. It was too much for them to actually look upon him. And what did they do? They called out to each other. Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They gave praise to him. Day in and day out, seeing his holiness motivated them to praise God continually. They couldn't even 
look at him fully. And yet, they praised him because of it. That was, that's one of the first and foremost motivations that we have whenever we see God is being completely distinct, completely separate, majestic above everything else. We praise and we worship. But that's not the only reaction we see in the text. If we go to continuing on in verse 4. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah, when he sees God, his reaction, his first reaction is, woe is me. Woe is me. Now, there's a little bit of a sense here that Isaiah, in the first chapters, the first five chapters of the book, you know, he is a prophet. This isn't his calling as a prophet. He had given prophecies before this because we know he had given prophecies when King Uzziah was living. And this happened when King Uzziah died. And there's a sense, though, that he, he was a little full of himself. There's a sense here that he actually felt like he was the righteous one. Like he was the one who is the prophet of God, who is going out there and telling all these reprobate people what God said and that he was better than them. There is that sense with this. And yet when he sees God, he is completely and utterly undone. It's, that, it's a feeling of utter insignificance when confronted with the majesty of God. And it's a feeling of utter defilement when confronted with the absolute moral purity of God. When he sees God, he feels his own sin in him palpably. And he feels himself being undone. We get this picture kind of several times in Scripture, really. In Job, we see it. Now, the story of Job, most of you probably know, but I'll, I'll give a little bit of a refresher. Job was a righteous man. And his life was destroyed by Satan. And his friends come to comfort him after his life is destroyed and his house is in ruins and they sit with him for three days and they don't say anything to him for that entire three days. And then he starts to speak. And as he speaks, he maintains his innocence throughout it all until at the very last he starts to question God. He starts to make subtle accusations about God. That even if God was in the wrong here, he would have no way to actually convict him. He would have no way to actually put him on trial. And this culminates in God coming down in a whirlwind and meeting Job and showing him who he is. And Job, at the end of that, in uh, chapter 42, starting in verse 6, Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Speaking of himself. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, 
which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me, he said. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Confronted, though he was blameless throughout the entirety of the book, until the very end, confronted with the majesty of God, he is as dust and he is undone. We see the same thing in Habakkuk. Now we read that verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, where he's telling people that God can't even look at evil. Well, the story of Habakkuk is a little bit shorter and just as profound. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he feels himself to be the righteous one. And he's complaining about God. God, there's all of these evil people in Israel. Why are you letting them be so evil? And God says, don't worry. I'm sending the Babylonians. They're going to they're gonna take care of the problem by exiling the people and wiping them out. And Habakkuk says, why in the world would you do that, God? Why would you use evil people to judge us? How could you do that? How can you condone evil? And God says, don't worry. I'm sending somebody to sack the Babylonians afterward. They'll be judged too. Oh, and by the way, by the way, Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith. Now, Paul picks up on that in Romans, where he says that the righteous live by faith. As God was using it to Habakkuk, though, he was impressing on him the fact that Habakkuk was not living by faith. And so God pronounces his judgment, and then at the end of the book, Habakkuk prays a powerful prayer that you might be familiar with, and he ends it like this. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock will be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. It's the same thing. He's confronted by the majesty of God, by the absolute moral purity, by his holiness, and he is undone. And he says, okay, God. Okay. I'm sorry. I will wait. And I will have confidence in him. There is a third reaction, though. A third reaction to God's holiness here. If we look at verse 6 and 7. Well, 6 through 8. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. That third reaction to God's holiness is after after Isaiah's sin, after his defilement had been atoned for. After he had been restored and made whole again. And what was his reaction? I have to go and tell people about this. The Lord has called me to tell people about this. And I have to go and tell people about this. Even though the Lord told him that it would be a hard message that would only sporadically be received. Even though I have to go tell people about this. So why is it important? Why look to these three reactions? Well, it's because these are the proper reactions to have when confronted with the holiness of God. The holiness of God should move you to be undone about your sin. They should move you, the holiness of God should move you to praise. And the holiness of God should move you to want to go out and tell people about him. And if you are reading God's word, if you are hearing a sermon, if you are thinking about the holiness of God and you don't have one of those reactions, chances are you're not actually looking at God. The proof is in how you react. Are you undone? Are you moved to praise? Do you want to go and tell people about him? So, we've looked at what it means for God to be holy, and we looked at what it means for us to react to him, how we react to his holiness. But what about our holiness? We are told in scripture that we're to be holy as he is holy, and that we're to strive for it because without it, we will not see the Lord. It's important, and it's important that we are holy as he is holy. That seems a super high bar. So what does it mean? How can we be holy as he is? How, how is it that we strive for holiness? So, first off, it's, it's that same concept that I talked about in the beginning when I talked about kadosh, the word holiness. Separation. Separation. It's being separate from sin. It's being separate from the world. It's that we don't live in the world as the rest of the world does. We are in the world, but not of the world. Our lives are qualitatively different in some way. People should be able to tell that we are different by how we live our lives. That's the first part of what it means to be holy for us. That we are to be set apart for God. And the second is moral purity. When we talk about moral purity, a lot of people think, okay, well, we, we need righteousness. And that's true, but righteousness really isn't the same thing as holiness. 
Righteousness is connected to holiness. But holiness is something that's different. What do I mean? I mean that righteousness is right behavior. It's the things that we do that is right, that are right. It's how we behave. It's how we act. It's how we think. Holiness goes beyond that. Holiness is wanting what is morally right. Holiness is wanting what is morally right. At every step, righteousness is doing the right thing. Holiness is wanting to do the right thing. And this also means that we have to detest evil. We can't approve of it. Not even in its smallest form. When we see evil, when we see sin, we have to hate it. Not necessarily hate the people who perpetrate it. Not necessarily hate ourselves, but we have to hate the sin. We have to hate it with a holy hatred. Our holiness isn't strictly speaking our behavior, but it should motivate our behavior. And I hear you saying, but Jason, that seems like kind of an impossible task. How in the world could I possibly do that? How could I live holy as he is holy? How could I be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect? How is it that I can have that holiness without which I won't see the Lord? That's also highlighted in the text. If you look at verses 6 and 7 again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The whole point is that you cannot do it yourself. This isn't something that you can just buckle down, pull yourself up with your bootstraps, and do yourself. And that's even here back in Isaiah. Isaiah confronted with the holiness of God and undone. His first step toward true holiness is God atoning for his sin. You can't do it. God must do it. And we hear, when we realize that, we hear Jesus in the Gospels saying things like, when talking about uh, having a righteousness and a holiness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, he says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. He says in Hebrews chapter 10, Verses uh, 14. Sorry, I was on the wrong page. This is the same verse that Eddie read. And it's such a beautiful verse. He says, For by a single offering he, that is Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in Hebrew, the word for sanctify has an interesting relationship with the word for holy. It's actually the same word in a different conjugation. It's the same word. It actually means uh, holy yourself. To holy yourself. To set yourself apart. 
to cut yourself off. Not cut yourself off, cut yourself away. That's what sanctification means in Hebrew. And so he's saying here, and many translations will pick this up, that for by a single offering he is perfected. That's what Jesus said that must happen. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. For all time, those who are being sanctified, some translations actually look at that and they say, those who are being made holy. Because that's what sanctification is. And Jesus, he came to live the perfect, holy, righteous life. And he did that for you, for me, for us, for his people. And he took on the defilement of our sin all upon himself. And he atoned for it on the cross. He made certain, made certain that it could not separate us from him any longer. It could not separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ. He made certain of it. In Romans 8, starting in verse 25, he goes on like this. He says, likewise... The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Not only did Christ come and live the perfect life for you, not only did Christ die the death that you should die and atone for your sin and <clears throat> provide justification for you, he has sent the Holy Spirit into you. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And part of what he is doing is conforming you to the image of his son. Who is the most holy man who has ever walked the earth? It's Jesus. Jesus is the most holy man that has ever walked the earth. Because Jesus, though he was in the form of the servant, was God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. But, he's holy. And you are being conformed to his image. If you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, that is happening. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We know that. And so when you ask the question, how is it that I can be holy? How is it that I'm supposed to strive for holiness? It's right there. To strive for holiness is to strive to be further conformed to the image of Jesus. To strive for holiness is to look like your Savior. And how do you look like your Savior? You look like your Savior by praising Him. By worshiping Him. By coming to church and singing your praises to Him. By reading your Bible. 
by interacting with the Lord in prayer, that, that is how you are further conformed to the image of Jesus. It's also, as we'll, as we'll learn just in a few minutes, one of the things that happens in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is present here. His real presence is here in a spiritual way. And the Lord's Supper nourishes you, provides, it is a means of grace. And this is one of the ways that we pursue holiness, is by taking communion and celebrating our union with him and our union with each other. Isn't it great that we don't have a God that just gave us a set of rules? We don't even have a God that just said, Here, here's who I am, I need you to match up to it. No, no. We have a God that said all of that and said, By the way, have faith in me. I will do it. I will finish the work. Amen. Let us pray. Father, your holiness is too great to behold. Not even the angels in heaven can withstand looking at you because you are so pure, so lovely, so beautiful, so holy. Even they have to cover their faces. But Lord, we have your great promise. We have your promise that in glory we will behold our Savior with unveiled face and we will see exactly who you are by looking at him. We know, Lord, that he is your image, the firstborn of all creation. We cannot see him clearly now, but Lord, you have given us a name. We pray that you further, through the work of the Holy Spirit, enliven our hearts and unveil yourself to us so that we might see you as you truly are. Lord, we ask that as you do this, that you strengthen us, keep our faith alive and turn toward you. Let us cherish you above everything else. Lord, when we feel our own defilement, when we feel our own sin, let us know, Lord, that you have dealt with that too. And it stands between us no longer. Because you have atoned for it. And there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Amen.